Well, this is Labor Day weekend, so this is generally the traditional end of summer. So that's kind of sad for me. A lot of you have already started school. And a lot of times I um, catch up with a lot of you by just following you on social media. And I watch a lot of what you folks do uh, on Facebook or Instagram. And this past summer, uh, some of my friends, I noticed uh, that they're going through, as parents, that rite of passage that they go through with their teenage children, and that's getting their driver's license, right? Uh, it's a funny because it's, it's, it's universally known that that's one of the, at least for me, the most tense and most anxious and fearful time of my life was helping my kids learn how to drive. And actually, I'm, I'm such a nervous person in a car that I had to delegate that to my wife, Terry. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of demonstrate probably a lot of you parents uh, what, what I felt whenever I was sitting in the passenger seat of the car when my kids were driving. I don't know if this pose looks familiar to any of you. <laughs> or, or the other one where you're doing this, the imaginary pumping, the imaginary brake in the car. I mean, uh, I couldn't, couldn't stand doing that. Uh, so... As I said, I, I delegated it out to my wife and, and also to professional teachers to help my kids drive. Uh, but the one of the things about driving, right, the thing you notice about novice drivers is that skill to be able to look over the shoulder, right? Uh, that's often not that easy to do because a lot of times when people look over their shoulder, they tend to pull the steering wheel where they're looking. And that's kind of a dangerous thing to do on the freeway. But that's a skill that all drivers have to learn, is to be able to look over the shoulder. Because there's a, there's a blind spot that's on each side of the car that the mirrors will not pick up. You literally have to look over your shoulder to check if there's any cars or objects over, over in your blind spots. And that's what we're kind of talking about today, is about blind spots and how to overcome them. And one way we do that with a physical blind spot when we're driving a car is to actually look over our shoulders. Now, blind spots can also happen in a social economic way. Um, I just had a conversation with my daughter last week. She's on the East Coast, and uh, there's a little bit less diversity out there. And she was talking to her roommate who happened to just decide on the spur of the moment to go buy a car. And she went to the dealership and, and came back with a car. And her roommate was saying, wow, it's so easy. All I have to do is just fill out a couple of forms, and then you end up with a car on loan. And, and my daughter was kind of thinking in her head that, uh, that her roommate uh, didn't realize some of the privilege that she has that not everyone is capable of doing that. And she just mentioned, oh, you probably had a really good credit score. And not hinting to the fact that she had a privilege because of her economic status, but also probably that she was not a person of color and wasn't hassled about her credit rating. So those, those are some of the blind spots that some of us may have due to our socioeconomic statuses that we have to be careful to be aware of. 
A blind spot is a bias or area ignorance that one has but is often unaware of. And I just shared a physical blind spot, a blind spot that's caused by social economic purposes, a perspective, but there's also, we can have blind spots in our faith and worship. Blind spots in our faith will have a severe effect on our relationship with God. Actually, it can make us spiritually sick. And this is something that we must be aware of. And if we want to do the best that God wants us to be in the world that he has put us in, we have to be aware of some of these blind spots that we may have in our faith and in our worship. Because bottom line, all of us want to be healthy, right? We want to be the best we can. And sometimes we have to be aware of these blind spots that do come up. And so this morning, I'm going to uh, read and teach from a, a text that is one of my favorites in the Bible. It's Isaiah 58, verse 1 to 12. We actually used it during our, our, uh, our retreat, our church retreat, but I'm going to take it from a little bit of different angle than, than was taught um, during our retreat. And it's, this passage is a reminder to me, uh, of a constant reminder for me, of the purpose that I have on earth that God has given me. So let's go to Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12, and I'll go ahead and read this for you. Verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The, the glory of the Lord shall be your rare guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and you will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, 
the restorer of streets to dwell in. And that's the word of the Lord. So in this passage, right off the bat, we can tell that the Israelites have a problem because God tells his prophet Isaiah to go to the nation of Israel to tell them this. He tells them in verse 1, Cry aloud and do not hold back, Isaiah. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, the house of Jacob, their sins. So apparently the nation of Israel has gone awry. They have a blind spot. They apparently have done something which caused them to be, have a broken relationship with God now. And the thing that, that essentially the Israelites have forgotten was God's instructions to all of his people to love others, to care for other people. And that was their blind spot. And, and we can see that it's a blind spot because in verse 3, the people of Israel say this, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And so God has to tell them in verse 3, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. So apparently God has to point out that the people were actually doing some really bad things. They were hitting people. They were quarreling. They were fighting and, and they're oppressing the workers. And, you know, this is Labor Day weekend, right? This is the weekend where we celebrate the labor movement and how unions and organized um, uh, workers get to, to establish regulations that protect workers' rights. And here we have an example back in the day that the Israelites were actually uh, exploiting, abusing their workers. Kind of ironic. But that's what God wants us not to do, is to treat people like they're trash. And here God has to remind his people, even though they're going through the motions of what looks like good religion, you know, they're fasting, they're, they're mourning with sackcloth and using ash, they're going through all the motions of going to church. But in their hearts, they turn around and they don't really act as people of God. They're abusing people, they're hating people, they're quarreling, and this is not good. And so it's my belief that the root cause of this kind of behavior, where we would do one thing and forget to do another, it's rooted in pride. One of my um, favorite books that I I read when I was... um, Becoming a, a, a baby Christian was the book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. It's a great book. It's a really hard book to go, go through because the language uh, is kind of hard to understand sometimes. But in there, there's some really deep, deep um, uh, thoughts that C.S. Lewis comes up with. And the, one of my favorite quotes from him is this about pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. So what what C.S. Lewis is getting here is that our pridefulness 
is in the comparing, is that we think we are good because we look at someone else and say, I'm better than you. That's pridefulness. It's either having more talents or more possessions or having more of whatever. And that's how we gain our self-esteem, our identity, is by looking at someone else and comparing and saying, we're better than you. Now, to turn it another way is also uh, a way to look at this, is actually, which I feel a lot of um, believers actually do, is they look at other people and say, I'm not better than you. They actually say, I look at you and I'm not as bad as you. That's pridefulness too. But, you know, I don't want to blame, you know, uh, us having a tendency to do that because I, I believe we're all conditioned to do that as soon as we're born. I mean, it is kind of maybe the, the human sin nature, but society, our cultures, kind of condition us to think that way, right? Uh, when we're little, when you go into a social setting with your peers, you don't know what to do. So a lot of times you just look around and see what your peers are doing, and you do exactly what they do, right? When you, you play sports, when you're a little kid, you just look at, okay, how does he throw the ball, or how does he kick the ball, or she, and you just kind of emulate and mimic. And a lot of times that's how we learn, is we just kind of mimic and follow other people. Uh, even as an adult, I'm embarrassed when I go to some formal dinners, I have no idea which side of the, uh, of the table is my bread plate? Is it the left one or is it the right one? And then all, you, all of you folks who are more savvy than I, it's the left one, right? It's the one that's above the forks. And even there, you've got multiple forks, multiple knives, the water cup. Is the water cup on the right side or on the left side? It's supposed to be on the right side. But it can be confusing because sometimes they put it all over the place in the table setters. But those are the things that I go and I just look to my peer and the one they pick, I'll pick the same one then. So at least we're all consistent. But that's a, pro that's a problem when we start to emulate and mimic those around us. And I'm going to use the analogy, again, of driving. You know, one of the driving tips is we just go with the flow of the traffic, right? But the problem is if everybody's speeding then technically, you're speeding too. And that's what's happening here in the, in the church, or at least with the nation of Israel. They were just all looking at each other, and they're just copying each other and saying, okay, if you do that, then I can do that. And then if I don't do that, I don't have to do that. So that's a problem in a lot of our behaviors when we start comparing or looking at other people as our standards. Because if people are flawed then we become flawed too. And God is reminding his people, don't keep the status quo by just comparing with each other, one another, because you've got blind spots. And the way that God wants us to overcome our blind spots, and the only way that I know, is to look at the right standard. And the right standard is God himself. And to overcome blind spots, we need to shed light on them and the greatest light in the world is Jesus Christ. And here God says to his people, going through the motions of religion is not 
right with me. What's right with me is to do tangible things to love other people. And he says, says this in verse 6 and 7, and again, he repeats it in 9 and, ten, 9 and 10, about loving people tangibly who are hurting or suffering in the world. God tells his people specifically what to do. I don't know anything more clear than what the scripture says here. Verse 6 through 7 says this, Is not this the fast that I choose? I, God, choose. Not the one that you folks were doing earlier in verses 3 through 5. But God says this, To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Pretty specific. Help the homeless, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help those who are persecuted and in, in, in um, chains, in bondage. Pretty specific. We all kind of categorize all that in, in the social justice realm. But sometimes that, that nomenclature, I think, makes us sometimes hesitant to enter into that, into those, um, that area of helping others because we get, oh, it's so political. I don't think it's political. It's biblical. It's what God wants us to do to help those who are suffering and who are hurting. And the most convicting um, verse there is the last part of verse 7. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. That's pretty, pretty harsh to hear. And, and I'm guilty of that. Hiding yourself from your own flesh and blood. Meaning, how many of you, uh, and you don't need to raise your hands, when you walk down the street, especially in major cities, and you see a homeless person, and you don't even look at them. You actually may choose to go across the street to avoid them. That's what it means to hide from your own kind. Those people are made in the image of God, but we choose to not even look at them. And, and that's just physically walking down the street. A lot of us choose to move into neighborhoods where we won't be able to see that anymore. Um, I had a conversation with some of my um, uh, Cal alumni uh, who tend to be on the liberal side. Nothing wrong with that. The, they tend to be more uh, environmentally um, uh, concerned. But we had a conversation about electric vehicles and, and, and they're saying, yeah, you know, we, we should all be driving electrical cars, getting rid of gas fuel cars. <clears throat> and then I had to point out to them that, you know, electric cars are not all that green also because there's a problem with the batteries. The batteries have a certain amount of lifespan. But someone has to make those batteries, which are toxic. Then you also have to dispose of those batteries, which are toxic. And generally, there are places where the poor are. People, the affluent, don't have those kind of waste deposits near their homes. And it's just a, a societal consistency that those who have not will be taken advantage by those who have. 
And so you could be driving an electric car, and, uh, but there are consequences. And usually it's poor communities who pay the price environmentally for those toxic factories that make those batteries and also how they dispose of them. So it's not always as green as you think. Now, with these blind spots that we have, the only way that we can overcome them, as I said, is to go to the standard, and that's God himself. And, and something that these blind spots we don't realize is that they, they make us spiritually sick. And being spiritually sick is not like you're having the flu or you break a leg. You, you may not actually feel anything physically or even emotionally or mentally. But being spiritually sick is a reality. And God is pointing out this. Because when I read this, I studied this, this passage uh, many times, I always thought it was kind of interesting that God says that your, your healing will come after you do all these, the, these things of helping other people. Because in verse 8 it says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And so you know, it's, it's kind of a non-intuitive kind of principle that even when I'm hurting and when I'm sick, that when I help other people, I get better. Right? Logically, a lot of times when we're feeling bad, we're feeling sick, we don't feel like helping anybody else. I mean, we're more self-centered. We're more looking at ourselves and say, woe is me, you know, self-pity. But here, God seems to be saying, you get healing by doing what I tell you to do. <clears throat> so I definitely don't want to make sure that we understand we're not doing a faith works kind of religion, right? You don't earn God's... Um, um, salvation for doing works. That's, I don't, that's not the point here. But what, what God is pointing out is when we are helping other people according to his instructions, like helping the oppressed, helping those who are hurting, we're in his will. Meaning we are obedient to him. And that process of doing, no matter what circumstances we are in, it helps us to receive the best life that God can, that wants for us. That by doing that, we are living the life that God desires for us. And then there are natural blessings that flow out of that. I mean, we really don't earn it. It's just that when we do it, it just happens. It's just that means when, when we're helping other people, as God describes, we're blessed. And that's something that if we could miss out on because of our blind spots, that, that hurting other people, ignoring other people, not helping them in social justice ways makes us spiritually sick. And God is saying, you can overcome that by doing these things. And he describes a wonderful, amazing picture, right? It says, your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. 
And that's, that's amazing. I mean, I don't know how many of you, I, and I, I love sitting um, on a beach or somewhere in the mountains and you see the sunrise at dawn. I mean, you, uh, there are times uh, I uh, go through certain moments of depression. And uh, if you're going through depression, um, the worst times are at night. When you're alone at night and it's dark, voices are going through your head, all kinds of imaginary uh, anxieties come up. But for me, the most most hopeful moment is seeing the sunrise and seeing the rays of the sun come over the mountain. And that's what God is saying here in that imagery, is that your healing will be like the dawn with the sun rising above the mountains or above the horizon. And that's what God promises to bless us with if we are obedient to his will. And in verse 11 and 12, paints even a a more beautiful picture of restoration. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden. I mean, many of you have traveled to places where there's a lot of rainfall. It's so lush and green. It's, it's just so beautiful and amazing to see. And that's what God is saying here about a watered garden. Like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Be known as repairers. To be known as restorers of multiple generations. I mean, that is, that's an amazing promise. Is that when we do simple acts of helping others... God calls us restorers of multiple generations. That's amazing. To be called a repair and restore is something that I can't fathom. But that's counterintuitive in many ways, is that when we are hurting, but when we restore others, we get restored. I mean, that's, that's kind of a cool effect. And uh, I want to show a, a, a picture of, of, from our eye screening. Um, there I am, and on the, on the left, there is uh, my friend Russell Jong. And in the middle is a woman named Gwen. And so Russell, he contacted me like a couple of months before our eye screening and asked that, and he had heard about our eye screening, which we've done for about eight years now if we could help his friend, who happens to be a woman who is homeless. And so Russell's church has been ministering to her and helping her to get her feet back on the ground. Uh, and, but the problem is she lost her glasses. So for two years, she, she hasn't been able to see anything. And she only borrows, I think apparently she was wearing her pastor's glasses just to kind of get around, but it wasn't the same as having your own. And so Russell contacted me and said, can we help her? And, and we, we said, yeah, just have her come. And we actually treated her like a VIP at our eye screening. And so 
she was able to get a pair of glasses. And, th and there we are taking a picture of commemorating when we delivered it a couple weeks ago. And Russell said on the drive back home, Gwen kept telling him all the things she could see in the car, out the car window. And, and it's it was just, she was just so thrilled to be able to see again. And, and you know, that's, you know, in some ways, a metaphorical way of why we exist as Christians, to help the blind see. And there, there's a real case of that, that we, we as a church was able to do that. But I remember when we delivered the glasses, Gwen kept thanking me and, and saying, oh, you have been a blessing to me. And I had to stop her. And I had to tell her, I said, we, we do this because we do this because God calls us to do this. But you are actually a blessing to us. Is that by helping you, we are helping ourselves. Exactly what God is saying in Isaiah 58. That she, allowing us to help her, allows us to be blessed in the process. And, and I know a lot of you have, have experienced that, right? It is better to give than to receive. It's that concept as, a, as, a, as followers of Jesus Christ to do what Jesus did on the cross, to sacrificially give himself so that others may live. And that's, that's our calling. And it's counterintuitive in this world where it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world where we compare with our neighbors to see if I'm better than them or actually on the flip side to say, oh, I'm not as bad as them. But God calls us to give of ourselves so that others may be healed and restored. So my main takeaway this morning is that when we help others, helping others helps us. It's kind of this boomerang effect that in return, when we help other people, we get better. I know it's counterintuitive, but it's, try it. And actually, you'll probably understand it because a lot of you have probably already practiced this in your own life, that helping others helps yourself. And, and, and uh, to best exemplify this, I want to now highlight and bring up our special guests, Freely and Hope, with uh, their director and founder, uh, Nicole Lim, and also one of their graduate scholars, Lydia Mattioli. Okay, I remembered. So why don't we get you mics? You can use those. And I'm just going to ask them a few questions because I believe the work at Freely and Hope through Nicole and through her scholars, they represent exactly what um, Isaiah 58 is talking about about how out of their own brokenness that they reach out and help others and, and restoring them. And through that process, they have also been healed and restored of their brokenness. So why don't we, uh, you folks uh, give them a hand to welcome up them up here. Many of you are familiar with Nicole. Nicole has uh, uh, been here a few times, you know, that we've, we've supported her for the last four years or so. So it's been amazing to see how her, her, um, 
her baby is growing. <laughs> and just amazing works, because every time I, 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 I uh, look and try to see what's new, you've got new programs and, and new people added to your staff, and so it's kind of cool. So I wanted to ask Nicole just to, to share why Kenya? I mean, a Chinese-American girl from the Bay Area, how did this happen? Yeah, so I grew up in all the comforts of the Bay Area and went to Loyola Marymount University, so a very posh school on the beach. And um, when I was in film school, I knew that I wanted to use my filmmaking strengths as a way to expose issues of the world. And so um, I, I wanted to go to someplace in Africa to learn more about the world so I can learn how can I learn from the stories of others that I meet and really highlight the sense of dignity that they have amidst poverty. I think growing up as an Asian American, I saw the struggle of my grandparents and I recognized that even though they had been born of poverty, even though they had escaped communism, even though they have gone through so many things, their strength was inherent, their dignity was inherent, and that couldn't have been taken away. And so knowing that about people who have grown up in oppressed situations, I wanted to create a film about that. And so I went to Kenya for the first time. And in Kenya is when I learned about issues of sexual violence re directly related to lack of access to education. And that's what brought me to Kenya is by making this film. And, and uh, maybe you can share a bit about the culture and the context of Kenya. Because to be honest, it's not that um, sexual harassment and violence doesn't happen here, but I don't know if it's at such an extreme level that happens in Kenya. And yeah, I think what I was learning while in Kenya is that um, a lot of ritual practices are innate in specific cultures, like the Maasai tribe, they practice female genital mutilation. Um, early marriages, a lot of girls are as young as like six or seven are getting married to old men over 70 and 80 um, for a dowry price. And so learning of these very um, oppressive practices within these cultures is also what helped me to realize these things. But honestly, recognizing these issues in Kenya also helped me recognize the issues here at home. And they're not, they're not very far related, yeah. So Lydia, uh, my question to you, why Freely and Hope? How did you get connected? And uh, what was that opportunity presented to you like? Um, well, uh, I went to high school in Kibera. I was born in Kibera, as the video gave you a context. Um, and so growing up in Kibera, you're so enclosed. You know, you're used to the same cycle of uh, just being there. You know, you don't get to dream beyond that point. So you just see the abuse that is going on in that place. And in high school, I wanted more than that. So deep down, I knew there was more than that. And so I started volunteering in uh, different organizations that came to our school mm -hmm. and just uh, wanting to learn more about the society out there and what they were doing about the, the different forms of violence that were happening in our community. And so after high school, I got connected to an organization that was working in our school and I started volunteering there. And through that, the, the guy who was in charge of the whole organization knew about my ambitions of wanting to do more about uh, sexual violence. And so he was the one who knew Nicole. And uh, one time he was like, you know, there's this organization and 
uh, they are doing intakes and I believe that it will be a good fit for you and for what you want to do because uh, that organization, yes, it was doing a lot in terms of menstrual hygiene, but it was um, limiting my capabilities of, you know, growing more beyond just uh, uh, Kibaya. And so that's how he introduced me to Nicole. He told me about the application and I applied for a scholarship. Um, I knew they were prioritizing on survivors uh, by then. I didn't know about the advocates part of it. And so I did, uh, just hoping, hoping that they would accept, accept me. And after a few weeks, I got a call that, you know, I got the, I could go to be interviewed by Freely in Hope. And so that's where I met Nicole. And uh, we just started talking about the different things that we want to do. And I was so inspired by the work that they were doing in the lives of survivors. And I wanted to be part of that. And that's how she took me up and started believing in my dreams. And here we are right now. Yes. So, Nicole, too, uh, just to kind of give a review, because uh, you started first mainly just baseline foundational was helping girls survive and, and that was your start uh, how has some of the tools that you've developed um, ministry formats that have been born through your work um, through the years can you describe some of that yeah, well, Lydia mentioned that uh, we work both with survivors of sexual violence and also advocates against sexual violence. And I think that's what I learned in the process is our, our main vision is to end the cycle of sexual violence. And I recognize that it needs all of us involved, not just survivors, but also advocates. Also me being an advocate, not a survivor of myself, I learned best from the community of survivors that informed me on what would be most helpful for um, their community. And what I found that has been most healing um, in terms of the tools that we provide is a community of belonging. Mm -hmm. And it's something very simple, it seems like, just a community of belonging. But what the community of belonging does is actually providing a safe space for these stories to be heard. And these stories are often stigmatized, they're judged, they're not believed, they're not heard. And for survivors to constantly say that, oh, I don't believe you, oh, it was your fault, oh, what were you wearing, it really tears at their their sense of dignity, right? And so if we can create that safe space where they can feel free to share their stories in an environment where they're heard and believed, and not just heard and believed, but also uplifted into their strengths, that is what I found has provided the most healing. With the, uh, how have you um, seen God working through your, your ministry work, uh, or even in your own life? Maybe one story to illustrate an example of God's working? Mm, I have seen God doing amazing work through our scholars, uh, the survivors that we work with. I got the opportunity to work with survivors from the point where they came into our organization. And this has been the most transforming journey of my life because I got to see you know, uh, them walking through the healing, the liberation, and the transformation aspects. And it's not easy because it involves tears, it involves uh, suffering, it involves uh, relapsing, you know, where you grow to some point and going back to the darkness and, and the harsh background that most of our survivors are from. But I have seen God uh, get them through it all, and they come out strong and, and powerful, and and they lead, uh, and that is the 
most powerful thing I've, I've seen. And so through that, uh, God has enabled me to also work on my own brokenness because uh, through their stories of courage and bravery, I get the strength to also face my own fears and just do things that I've always wanted to do, do things that God has always wanted me to do. And that's how I came into program design and going into the community without fear. Uh, so God has uh, done amazing work through uh, working with survivors and, and wanting to do something about it. Yes. Same question to you, Nicole. Yeah, we have this belief in our community that it is the most oppressed that have the potential to become the most powerful leaders among us. Like Lydia said, it is very difficult to, to, to see and bring them up into that trajectory. But for the few that have made it, that is what really proves, us, proves to us that God is real and that God exists because we know where they came from. Um, a lot of our girls, when they first come into the program, they can't even say their name. They can't say, hi, my name is. They can't look at us in the eye. They can't have a full conversation with us because of the trauma that's so ingrained. And through the years of bringing them through our education programs, our leadership programs, and our storytelling platforms that Lydia is in charge of, um, they're then able to really come into the person that they were created to be. And seeing them come up into that trajectory is, um, is reason enough to believe that God exists in these places of oppression. I think also, um, like to the scripture, right, where it says, if you break the yoke of oppression, if you do these things, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the poor, then is when your healing comes out. And I think how I've recognized it in my own life, similar to what Lydia said, is that only if you engage in the oppression of the world, engage in the violence of the world, experience the brokenness of society, um, that sense of brokenness on the external actually becomes a reflection of your internal wounds, your internal violence, the words that you say, the words of violence that you say against yourself. And that exposure then allows you to recognize, oh, I need healing, right? And so the oppression of the world exposes your own internal oppression to allow you to come into healing. And unless you recognize that, you, don't, you wouldn't need it. Right? And so that's why the first step for us is recognizing that we even need healing. And for us to recognize that healing, we have to go in. We have to go into the deep, dark, and scary parts of the communities that we love so much because that is the only place where we will find our healing is in the oppression of the world. So finally, um, I'll ask, how can uh, we as a church support your organization? and? and uh, that we're in the work that you're doing. Yeah, so next year our dream is to reach out to 6,000 uh, high school students in Kibera through a program that I just recently launched. launched. It's called Eneza. Eneza is Swahili for Make It Known, and it's a high school program where we'll be going out to teach about violence prevention initiatives and how high school students can actually do something about the violence that is in their communities. And so uh, we are raising $120,000 to be able to implement this program. And so uh, one of the ways in which you can help us is through donating to that particular initiative. Yeah, that is one of the ways. And the link is 8, the letter, the number 8, <laughs> gala.fundraise.org. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so that's the biggest way, and that's why Lydia's here, is to really raise funds for that initiative. And why, why it's so exciting is that it, be, it moves beyond the scope of our survivors in our scholarship program. So we have 21 girls in our scholarship pro program that are either survivors of sexual violence or vulnerable to sexual violence. So we raise them through this leadership trajectory. In addition, we are equipping these same scholars to become leaders in Lydia's program, whom she equips to go out into the communities to teach the 6,000 high school students on sexual violence prevention. And so it's allowing this whole leadership trajectory to actually come into fruition by raising up the survivors and allowing them to be leaders in their own community. And also we found that that, right, as we're saying, like helping others heals us, right, in the same way it's allowing the scholars to help the communities that they love and the ones that they're from so that they can also find more healing in their leadership. Well, thank you for coming and sharing. And uh, why don't we give them a, an appreciation and hand to Nicole and Lydia. So I'm going to close this time with a word of prayer and, and to pray for free healing hope. Heavenly Father, we are, are thankful for um, just an opportunity to hear uh, how you're working in the world and that, um, that CLC uh, goes beyond these four walls that freely and hope are our hands and feet in other parts of the world, in particular in Kenya. So we thank you for, thankful for um, Nicole and, and for Lydia and all the other scholars uh, and staff um, of that organization as they work with women and girls who have um, experienced unimaginable horrors through sexual violence and abuse. So we pray that you continue to bless their, their organization and their work that they will be able to raise the funds and resources to be able to um, teach the next generations to change culture, to transform old ways into new ways. So I thank you, Lord, for our time this morning. May we remember that you are a God of love and that your love is not just for us, but for us to share with others. And by sharing our love with others, we may be healed of the brokenness that we have. So we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.